good to see you. I'm grateful to be worshiping with you this morning. Um, Earlier this week, my youngest daughter pulled me aside and wanted to know some details about our Christmas Eve service. And she said, "Uh, Dad, what a... what's the plan for Christmas Eve? Something like that. So we have worship service. We have one at 11 at 4 o'clock. She said, how, how long is the, uh, the service? Uh, how long are you going to preach? And uh, I said, well, it's an hour-long service. And without missing a beat, she said, I hope that's mainly singing, and ran away. <laughs> so uh, Here we are this morning, and uh, I've shortened my sermon in light of my daughter's wise counsel. (laughs) You can thank her whenever we leave a little bit later on. So, but we are, uh, we're going to finish up our study this morning of Hebrews uh, chapters one and two, as we've been seeking the last few weeks to try to answer the question, why did the Son of God become a man? And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to read verses 10 through 18. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And then we're going to see at least five answers that come from this passage about why the Son of God became a man. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. This is God's word to us. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God from whom, or for whom, and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am, the children of God, the children that God has given me. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not the angel he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he was made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. May the Lord bless the reading and the study of his word on this Christmas Eve morning. You may be seated as we go to him in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for the truth that we celebrate. Thank you for your presence with us by your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for Christ. Lord, I pray you would guard me from error, that you would bless your people this morning. You would encourage them, Lord. And if there's anyone here that does not know Christ, Lord, that today you would open their heart, Lord, to receive the good news, Lord, that we remember, and that we live by each day. We ask this in Christ Jesus' holy name. Amen. Five reasons why the Son of God became a man. The first is found in verse 10. The Son of God became a man to to be made perfect 
through suffering, to be made perfect through suffering. Now, immediately some of you are thinking, what does it mean that Jesus was made perfect? If you're a devoted student to Scripture, you know that Jesus is already perfect. He is without sin. How could he be any more perfect? Does this passage teach that somehow he had flaws that had to be fixed? Of course, you are correct in thinking this way. The author of Hebrews would go on to say that Jesus is sinless. He is morally perfect. But moral perfection is not the same thing that this passage is referring to. Instead, the focus is on Jesus' obedience as the incarnate Son of God. That's what we celebrate. That's what we remember during this Christmas season, that the Son of God took on human flesh and dwelt among us. And in a very real sense, while Jesus was perfectly holy from the time of his conception by the Holy Spirit, Jesus still needed to be tested and tried in regard to his humanity. His obedience as a man needed to be brought to completion, or what we would say a fulfillment or perfection, as these verses state. This becomes clearer when we think of what is said in verse 18, which states that Jesus can now help us in our temptation because he himself was tempted like us, yet without sin. Do you recognize that Jesus understands your temptation because he was tempted as well? But he did not arrive here on earth with an understanding of our temptation from a human perspective, which is something that he learned as he took on flesh. When the Son of God took on flesh and became a man, the man we call Jesus, God experienced something that he had never experienced before, namely what it was like to be a man. There was an experience that he had not had, sufferings that he had to endure to fulfill his role as the great high priest. And these are the things that he had not yet experienced as the Son of God prior to his incarnation. So the Son of God became a man in order to be perfectly fit for his role as a sympathetic and merciful high priest. This is the first reason why the Son of God became a man. The second reason that the Son of God became a man is found in verses 11 through 14, which teaches us it was to identify with us in suffering. Are you suffering here this morning? Are you wondering, does God really see and know what it's like to go through the pain and the sense of loss and the toil and, and the agony and even the anxieties and the things that you face on a regular basis. This passage makes things clear that not only did Jesus come in order to be made perfectly fit to do the work that only he could do, but also to relate to us as sons and daughters of God in our suffering. The author of Hebrews quotes two passages here that we just make note of if you're taking notes. Quotes from Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8 to highlight the role of Jesus as the suffering Messiah, the Christ who endures suffering and trusts the Lord for vindication in his suffering. And he does this that he might bring many sons and daughters into his glory. By Jesus, we are returning to the glory that we fell short of 
as Romans 3.23 tells us. It says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How do we as sinners get back to an enjoyment of the glory that we once knew prior to taking on our own sinful flesh? How would we ever be made reconciled to God is that the one who dwelt in glory became like us. And the means of our being brought back is through the suffering of Christ. I want you to contemplate what C.S. Lewis said about Jesus. This is profound yet simple to state. He says, the Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. We in our own strength and our own capacity and our own wisdom cannot make ourselves sons and daughters of God. And so what happened is the Son of God became like us in our weakness without sin that we might belong to God again. Christmas is about far more than the things that we remember and the things that we enjoy. It is ultimately about the reality is that God took the initiative to make you his child by making his son like us. In other words, Jesus became like us in order to redeem us. He didn't phone in salvation. He didn't send an angel to do it. He came to us in our weakness and need and took on his own weakness in order to redeem us from it. Isn't it unbelievable and actually almost an obstacle for people to imagine that what we remember during this season is that the one who who upholds all things by the word of his power, talked about in Hebrews 1, he He humbled himself into such a way that he took on the form of of a baby. And he was truly a baby. It's not like Mary gave birth to him and he started walking around feeding himself. He humbled himself in, in complete dependence upon those that he created and that he sustained. That is unbelievable to think about and to imagine. Why? So that he would know what it's like to suffer like we do and to redeem sinners like us, not because he was a sinner, but because we needed someone to care for us. Because Jesus became like us, we can become like him in the sense that we can be children of God. The author makes this point explicitly clear in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same thing. Which leads us to the third reason why the Son of God became a man, which was to defeat and deliver us from fear of death. To defeat Satan and to deliver us from fear of death. Isn't it, isn't it so, so confounding to our wisdom that God would choose to defeat the enemy of our soul, that he would, that he would begin an invasion with the birth of a baby? That's, that's, not what a, that's not what an evasion looks like. We're seeing war all over the world right now. And we, don't, we don't think about an invasion coming in the form of a humbled little baby. But he comes to defeat Satan and deliver us from fear of death. That is what verses 14 through 16 tell us. At first you may be thinking, what's the connection here between Satan and the fear of death? Well, you may 
say, well, if I'm not a Christian, if I don't trust Christ, if I don't love him, if I'm not looking toward him for my hope, then sure, maybe there is this power that Satan has over me regarding my judgment. If you're thinking this, then you may to one degree be correct, is that he reminds us of our own condemnation. He is an accuser. He is the one who rattles us when we are facing the prospect of standing before the judgment seat of Christ. The book of Revelation says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and he accuses them day and night before God. You who are here this morning that have put your trust in Christ, have you ever felt so guilty that you couldn't come to the Lord? Maybe you don't even feel worthy to be here this morning. Ever felt that way? Like, I can't go to church. I've just, I've just done so many things wrong. I've, I've just sinned in so many grotesque, awful ways. There's no way that God could accept me. That is the accuser telling you that what Christ has provided for you is not enough. And one of the things that Christ came to do is he came into the world to free you from those accusations that everyone that would put their hope and their trust in Christ would know that Satan has ultimately been defeated and so has the death that hangs over us. But how is it that he defeats the accusations that the enemy brings against us? If I'm guilty which we are sinners, we've fallen short of the glory of God. If we're guilty, how is it that he defeats Satan and defeats death? The fourth reason why the Son of God became a man was to satisfy God's wrath toward us. The Son of God became a man to satisfy God's wrath toward us, verse 17 tells us. It uses this glorious word, the word atonement. Atonement refers to the work of Jesus whereby he absorbs and satisfies God's righteous, holy, and just wrath toward our sins. In God's holiness, someone must be held accountable for their rebellion. Someone must do the time for the crime. Someone must be punished. It would be unrighteous. It would be unholy for God not to deal with our guilt. We are guilty, we have sinned, we deserve to die eternally for our sin. We deserve the wrath and judgment of God. Therefore, when we hear the accusations of the enemy, what we think is, is, well, he's right. And I'm enslaved and I'm terrified as a result of it. But what is God's solution to our plight? Does he tell us, you really ought to work harder, you ought to do better, you ought to give more, you ought to attend church more frequently, you ought to do all these things, and once you've completed the checklist off, then I'm satisfied. No, God takes the initiative in coming, in dying, in our place, under his wrath, in such a way that he is both judge and justifier of the guilty. Christmas, Christmas is, is not a reminder of how good we are. <laughs> I, I hate, oh, how I hate one of the Christmas traditions of being on the naughty list and being the good list. And if you're really bad, you don't get a gift. I hate that. 
I'm sorry if that's one of your Christmas traditions. It's so wrong. And for those of you know that this is like my last Christmas Eve as a pastor, and so you don't have to get mad at the church. But I want to be very honest with you. It's, it's, it, it teaches your kids such a skewed view of what Christmas is really about. Christmas is a tremendous reminder of how bad and desperately in need we are, such that God himself had to come and save us, because we could not save ourselves. And the beauty of this gift is you don't earn it, you receive it, because if you earned it, it'd be a wage, it wouldn't be a gift. And so we, we, rem- we remember that what's happening here at this Christmas season is God looked at how bad things were, and in the counsel of his eternal wisdom, he knew what would be required, and he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to take the place of sinners, not because we had knocked it out of the park and done so good, but because we had made such a mess and a wreck of our life, yes, your life, this morning, but he loved you so much that he came and he took on flesh to satisfy the righteous demands of his law so that you can be free. And that is a gift this morning. You don't earn it. You just believe in it. You just receive it. You just trust and it's yours. That's better than Santa Claus is coming to town. Jesus, check the list, and everyone here is on the naughty list. And that's why he came, not to save the righteous, but the unrighteous, not to save the well, but to save the sick, and that is good news. And he doesn't just leave us there, which leads us to the fifth and final point, and then I'm done. Can you believe it? Willow, I told you, it wouldn't be a really long one, honey. Brings us to the fifth and final point. Not only does he satisfy God's righteous wrath toward us by becoming an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He continues in his mercy toward us that the Son of God became a man to help us in our temptation. Verse 18, Jesus suffered in our place. Jesus suffered in ways that we will never suffer. And he overcame temptation in the midst of suffering that we would never even imagine. You think your temptation is is heavy and hard? Go read the Gospel of John and read what Jesus was tempted with. Go read the Gospel of Mark. Jesus was tempted that if he just bowed the knee to Satan, to the devil, he would be given all of the kingdoms of the earth. You've never been tempted like that. It doesn't take the offer of all the kingdoms of the earth for us to sin. It takes just a little bit of bad traffic and bad weather. Easy. We're an easy target. Jesus was tempted to the greatest extent, yet was sinless, but because he has experienced temptation in his humanity, he is able to come alongside us, not only with the provision and the power to forgive us, but also to help us in our temptation. He is a sympathetic high priest. He has done this to help us. Not as one who does not know what we're going through, but rather as the one who is made perfect through suffering and is now able to come with us and carry the burden with us. As the founder of our salvation, Jesus is perfectly equipped to sympathize with us in our struggles, free us from fear of death, empower us in the midst of our temptation. 
There is no one else to flee to. There is no better gift to be remembered this holiday than that Jesus Christ alone is our hope of salvation. To that end, we worship. To that end, we are full of gratitude. To that end, we celebrate Christmas. As you reflect on the message this week, feel free to reach out to our staff by emailing care at copperfieldchurch.com. We would love to hear from you and pray for you. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and our other podcast, Equipped for Good. Thanks for listening.